Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Miller, a postdoc at Cornell University, and she joined me to chat about natural history collections in the 21st century and beyond. You can read her article, which was written in collaboration with some prior bioscience and bioscience talks contributors in the links in the show notes. I'll also link to some prior natural history collections podcasts there as well. But for now, let's go to the interview. Dr. Miller, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Okay, so to get us started, uh, I think you know it's it's fair to say that we've done several podcasts in the past on natural history collections, and uh, we will refer our listeners to those. Uh, but just to give us a bit of a quick introduction, you know, what kinds of things are we talking about when we discuss natural history collections in this context? Yeah, so a natural history collection is really anywhere that catalog scientific specimens are stored and can be accessed by other researchers for study. So this can be kind of what you think of as sort of a stereotypical collection of, you know, a, a dusty museum drawer filled with strange bottles of alcohol and specimens inside of them. Um, but they also can include things like uh, minus 80 freezers filled with tissue samples or DNA samples. Um, they are increasingly including other sorts of media. So one really great example of this is the Macaulay Library at Cornell University has a collection of audio and visual recordings of animals. And also uh, something that I came to, uh, was unfamiliar with before I really sort of dove into this topic is that natural history collections can also include living collections. So things like zoos and botanical gardens, seed banks, and then also, um, you know, cell culture banks for growing bacteria or fungus as well, that all of these are different types of natural history collections. Okay, so we're talking about a lot of different types of organizations putting these together. So, you know, it's it's schools, universities, and what we would traditionally imagine as museums, but also places where there are living collections. Yeah, so exactly. So they can range from large institutions like the Smithsonian, with millions of samples uh, across you know, globally, collected globally across a large range of organisms down to teeny tiny museum or teeny tiny university collections that are essentially in, you know, some back cabinet of somebody's office. Okay. And, you know, obviously this has been a field that has advanced extremely rapidly in, say, the past 20, 25 years. Um, what have the developments been like? You know, what's happened to take us from that, you know, we're thinking of the dusty old sample in, you know, some cabinet somewhere. Yeah, so I think that this is a really exciting time for working with collections sort of on two fronts. So the first is that there have been a lot of recent technological developments that are allowing us to look at specimens in a different way or look at different parts of specimens. Um, so the one that I use the most is next generation sequencing. So because this looks at fragmented DNA, we're able to actually look at DNA of quite ancient historical specimens. Um, but there are also a couple of really cool um, projects using things like CT scanning to sort of look at the insides of uh, organisms or the bones of these. And sort of the other big uh, development has been these digitization initiatives in which uh, museums are essentially putting their collections online. So showing pictures of those samples that are available or even just label information. And so that this is really broadening the user 
space of who can access and uh, interact with collections. So, you know, in some time in the past, if somebody had a small collection, say, you know, in that cabinet somewhere, the only way to get it and to use it for research would be to knock on their door and say, hey, can I come and check this out? Um, But that's different now. Exactly. Yeah. So that's different now. Um, For the most part, there is still a long way to go in digitization, especially um, my particular field is in uh, looking at insect collections. And so insect collections, a vast majority of it has not yet been digitized, digitized and available. But essentially, yes. Yeah. So now um, anyone with an internet connection can sort of access this digital information. Okay. And, and so what, what sorts of research are the people who primarily access that information doing? Yeah, so the thing about collections, um, as you can see from the description of what is in a collection, is that the research of collect- with collections is incredibly broad as well. So this can include, you know, basic taxonomy, species discovery, um, but it can also include, you know, understanding about biodiversity. There's a lot of disease ecology research. Um, investigation of invasive species, um, pretty much any topic that you can think of in ecology and evolutionary biology can interact in some way with a museum collection. Okay, so this sounds like very valuable work um, and the digitization effort is you know, well underway. What are some of the obstacles that are you know, impeding progress and, and helping th- or causing things not to happen as quickly as we would like them to? Yeah, so you know, sort of at the same time that museum collections and natural history collections in general are reaching this broader audience, but they've also been experiencing a lack of funding and a lack of available staff. And so uh, essentially most of the issues um, impacting collections and sort of the ability to have people um, interact with them comes down to funding. So, you know, I mentioned that these there's sort of growing fields about uh, the ways that of collections interacting with scientists. So this also means that the responsibilities of collection managers are growing. So in addition to sort of the day-to-day responsibilities of managing the collections, we're now asking them to become experts in managing databases, maintaining websites, learning these new technologies. Um, and at the same time, they we're restricting the amount of funding that is available um, for managing these collections. So in some cases, funding actually gone down. Has it gone down at the same time that the requirements have gone up? Yeah, so I think that that's pretty fair to say. Um, And I think a lot of this stems from there has been a shift in the way that funding works in science. Um, So there's a lot less funding for sort of basic uh, research and infrastructure and a lot more moved towards, um, you know, solving specific questions. And so as a result, you know, you have these, you have strapped resources at a time when it would sound as though, um, you know, you could, you could actually make very good use of some additional funding in order to get everything available to people remotely. Yeah. So essentially I, I see that as the major challenge is so that we're reaching a time period in which collections are becoming increasingly more important. Um, They also play, I think, a really important future role in um, addressing questions about climate change and biodiversity issues uh, that are sort of looming on the scientific field. But at the same time, um, 
the funding and administrative support for these collections has just not kept up with these demands. Okay, so you know, really broadly speaking, then what sorts of things should be happening either within the collections community or within the broader scientific community that would help address some of this? Yeah, so the point of the the paper um, that we're really trying to get across is that I think there needs to be a real shift in the mindset about how the scientific community views collections and. I think that the current mindset is a little bit of each individual collection for themselves. So, you know, each individual collection needs to, you know, cobble together the resources to uh, both maintain what they have and think about where that collection is going in the future. And instead, I think that there needs to be a shift more towards the scientific community thinking that natural history collections are really a valuable resource and that the network of natural history collections is a really a valuable resource, and that it is our responsibility then to help preserve these collections and help make sure that future scientists have these collections available to them. So when you're using you know, a collection right now, do you have to you know, jump into each collection through a totally different platform? And you know, it, is it all very kind of dispersed in that way? Yeah, so there has been... So yeah, so each collection has sort of different rules about lending policies, different rules about who can access them. A lot of them use different um, software for uh, digitizing specimens. Um, again, I'm speaking mostly about insect collections, which is what I'm familiar with, but I know that this um, is also true across different types of collections and that they, they don't really talk to each other. Um, and then an added uh, issue of this is that as we're getting um, and there's additional data types associated with uh, specimens. So if you were to, you know, for example, get a CT scan of a specimen, that, you know, you're having also more information that could essentially be spread across uh, more museums or more scientists. Um, and so there's really the struggle to get that information to uh, interact with each other. Okay, so we have all, you know, all these new types of data coming in. We have this you know, dispersed network of collections that have, you know, different lending rules and things like that associated with each, you know, each one. Um, what sorts of efforts should we be undertaking then to kind of, you know, bring this together into a holistic network that, say, an insect researcher such as yourself is able to then, you know, pull the resources together and pool them in a way that, you know, you can get the kind of stuff done that you need to get done? Yeah, so I, I kind of... Um distill this down to sort of two issues. So one is, I think, the justifying why natural history collections continue to exist. And so that is really um, requires us reporting what we're using um, and citing the natural history collections that are being used. And the other uh, sort of challenge is um, filling in gaps about um, you know, funding and day-to-day -day operations of what's available. Okay, so thinking about, you know, the citation of natural history collections, is that is that a gap that has long existed in the field? I mean, you know, you, you don't see it too very frequently in, um, you know, scientific articles that are published. Is that is that a shortcoming on the part of those who are doing the publishing in the first place? Yeah, so I think this is a sort of a shortcoming on a lot of fronts. So each uh, collection, in my experience, has sort of a different way that they want to be cited, so that there's no real standardization. And oftentimes, um, this is not really clear when you borrow specimens about how uh, 
that collection should be cited. Um, and again, this can be sort of complicated between fields. You know, if you're um, looking at only a handful of specimens, it's really easy to keep track of numbers. But if you're looking at hundreds of specimens or thousands of specimens, this can be a lot more challenging. Um, and I think that it's also sort of a failure um, or maybe a challenge yet to be met, is a better way of putting it, of um, sort of uh, these reproducibility policies of journals. So that has been kind of a hot topic in recent years. But the um, acknowledgement and citing of specimens in natural history collections, for the most part, has not really made it into journal policies. And I think the the sort of attitude also needs to trickle down to um, sort of reviewers of papers being, you know, a check again that things are being cited and also reviewers of grants being a check that um, individuals that are using natural history collections in their research are including data management policies as part of their grants. So, um, yeah, so essentially, um, I think there needs to be more streamlining of this process and more standardization of this process. But any sort of citing of a natural history collection will help that collection justify the um, their use and sort of report back to people how many people are using and interacting with the collection. Okay, so that that's one side. That's getting it so that it's understood, you know, the value of the collections themselves and making sure that people know what's used and increasing the replicability of results as well. Yeah, and I guess um, something I should also point out um, that kind of before this, I came into this as a more of a molecular geneticist. And um, so there's a lot of information on uh, resources like GenBank. And so I think um, where they, you know, you'll have a DNA sequence that will um, get pulled and used for another sort of study. And I think that users of these, uh, you know, sort of one step away resources may not um, sort of appreciate that these resources actually originated in a natural history collection. And so I think that that's also part of, um, you know, increasing our acknowledgement of the importance of this is also increasing our recognition of where they come into science. And so you may think, you know, all I use is DNA sequences off the internet. I have no interaction with the natural history collection at all. And in fact, uh, you would be wrong about that. And is that something to work on the on the side of you know uh, organizations like GenBank? Or is that something that the individual users should be scoping out that information that underlies those sequences when they pull them? Yeah, so GenBank does, uh, when you upload a sequence to GenBank, it does have a position for you to um, insert that information about where it came from, you know, the specimen number or the collection. Um, but I think that it's less clear about how materials derived from that get back to the natural history collection. Um, so, yeah, so to my knowledge, there's no, like, here's your output of GenBank of the number of people that have used your sample from the natural history collection. So that would be useful to get in place. So I, th I think that that gives us an idea of, you know, kind of the way that specimens are used um, from collections and the need for greater acknowledgement, you know, through publication and other mechanisms to ensure that, you know, uh, people know what's being used and understand its value. Um, or what kind of moves should be made either on the infrastructure side or otherwise that would, make the specimen collections more usable? Um, you know, what, what what kind of things should we be envisioning or thinking about? What are the kind of next steps for the field um, in order to increase the use itself, say? 
Yeah, so, you know, I think that this really is a conversation that needs to happen between collections and the community, but I certainly have my opinions on this, but really because collections are so broad in general that I think, uh, you know, my opinion is not, of course, the only one that matters as much as I'd like to think otherwise. Um, but in general, I think uh, greater transparency and collections, you know, what is available, what are they looking for, um, as well as training initiatives. So training more users to use collections, um, training more users to essentially um, report things in a way that's easy for others to access. So, you know, if you're adding things to collections, you should also be immediately digitizing what you add um, are ways to kind of broaden what's available. So what kinds of things are happening on the on the training initiatives? I've, I've noticed a lot of sort of undergraduate, you know, types of training that are, are bubbling up and using, you know, collections through those types of organizations. Um, what's that looking like? Yeah, so um, I think there's a lot of sort of piecemeal training initiatives. There are a couple of really exciting um, sort of undergraduate programs that use specimens to teach undergraduates about um, sort of scientific topics like the AIMUP initiative or BLUE. Um, but as far as, um, you know, graduate initiatives, at least in my, my personal experience, that I, there has actually been sort of a, a loss of that as importance during graduate training about um, working with collections and, um, you know, both how to create specimens that are preserved in collections and also the need to create specimens that are preserved in collections. Uh, so this is actually something that I received no training on at all during my graduate degree. So is that a case of it existing primarily at the undergraduate level and then it's not followed up on? Or is that a case of, you know, it's just it has never really, you know, kind of reached into all the areas that it should. And it's just sort of a, you know, it's it's piecemeal right now. Yeah, I think it's more of a case of it being piecemeal. So I think that, you know, on a, a university to university basis or collections to collections basis, that it varies a lot in um, the importance given to training at sort of all fields or all levels, um, you know, from undergraduate, graduate uh, to professional training, um, and also sort of the emphasis on, um, you know, organismal research or sort of basic research as well, I think varies a lot from university to university. And again, I think that has to do with, um, you know, sort of changing scientific trends, that this is not something that is sort of as hot topic anymore or sort of fallen by the wayside as being important. And I think that, you know, if we as a community think that uh, collections are important and should continue to exist, that that's something that should change. Okay. And so, you know, that would speak to a need for greater efforts being made, um, you know, in a variety of different ways. But how do you, you know, kind of unite the community together? Is it through, you know, conversations such as this one, uh, not this particular conversation, but the one that was initiated by your article? Um, do we need uh, an organization? Do we need a, you know, a billion dollar initiative? I'm sure would be helpful. Uh, what are kind of the mechanisms? How does that sort of thing work? Yeah, I mean, I think a billion dollar initiative would be really great. And, you know, on the small chance that Mark Zuckerberg is going to listen to this podcast, you know, <laughs> I would point out that a lot of natural history collections were actually founded by kind of the robber baron era. Um, 
And so if he wanted to throw a you know, billion dollars that way, that would be appreciated. Um, uh, in general, I think this is probably going to be a topic that moves pretty slowly. Um, but I think that, you know, there needs to be conversations about why we think natural history collections should exist, what we think is stored in them. And I think that if we as a community can, you know, come to a satisfactory answer about that, then I think, you know, it comes as a natural path that, that we must then come up with a way to keep natural history collections and what's preserved in them existing. And so there are a bunch of, uh, I think, piecemeal initiatives, but I think sort of raising the profile of this as a important conversation that we're having um, will kind of maybe help meld those together. Let's talk a little bit about the potential value um, and, and maybe jump back a little bit to something we, we touched on a little bit but didn't get into, uh, which is the extended specimen. We've, we've had podcasts in the past, and we'll link to them in the show notes about the extended specimen network, proposed extended specimen network. But what, what is that in you know, kind of practical terms? We're, you know, we're no longer talking about, again, just the sample that's in the, the musty old jar somewhere in someone's cabinet. What do we mean when we say extended specimen and extended specimen network? Yeah, so just to remind people, so an extended specimen concept is really one that tries to represent the entire biological concept of an organism. And so essentially, the idea is that if you are going to collect a specimen, it's better to collect as much information about that specimen as possible. So to um, both collect information on sort of the context of the specimen. So, you know, where it was, what type of habitat, what behavior it was performing. Did you collect it by itself? Did you collect it with a group? As well as, you know, different categories of um, materials. So, you know, the skeleton and the body and the DNA, um, any sort of parasites that are associated with that, um, isotope information as well. And the idea is, you know, both that you get more information from any individual specimen and that this information is integrated. So you can ask a lot more um, integrative questions about that. And then it also, uh, you know, reduces the number of specimens perhaps that you need to collect because you have so much more information. Or if you have to prioritize uh, your um, time or space or money, that it's a lot better to have one specimen that you know a ton about than a couple of specimens that you know um, a lot less. The, I guess the challenges with this and the idea of um, the extended specimen network is that any individual scientist may not be interested in all parts of the organism or may not be qualified to collect and preserve all parts of an organism. And so the idea of this is that you can either get trained or get linked uh, up with somebody else who is more of an expert in um, other parts of the extended specimen um, to help preserve more information. And this kind of goes back to the mindset that I was talking about, shifting from uh, being kind of an individualistic viewpoint to a scientific community viewpoint. So an individualistic viewpoint is I need X, Y, and Z for my project. And a scientific community viewpoint is, well, we should get A through Z for any potential use in the future. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, it's it's getting people together to build the community and, and those types of efforts. Um, I'm wondering about the, the types of efforts that, you know, spawn an article like this one. Um, how did your research move from, you know, what you were doing and you were studying individually uh, to putting together this paper? 
um, and, and this kind of work? Yeah, so this project actually originated um, as a result of a small conference of other holders of this NSF Museum Collection Postdoctoral Fellowship. And so as part of this, we got together and we're sort of talking about, you know, challenges and issues that we had run across and, you know, sort of things that surprised us about uh, working with museum collections. And, you know, I think a fair number of the other researchers also came um, from a similar viewpoint to my own, where I had not really worked extensively with museum collections before receiving this grant. And so it was kind of, you know, a continual process of like, oh, I kind of wish I had known that before. Oh, they're doing that. Or, um, yeah, I was sort of, you know, it's kind of the, an outsider where there's a lot of information that would seem commonplace or very well discussed within the museum community. As sort of an outsider, I was like, oh, you know, I didn't even realize that I should be citing a museum collection every time I use it. And so that was kind of the origin of this paper was, um, you know, talking about challenges that we faced and talking about the future of collections and what we would like to see those look like and sort of ways that people could address these and particular people perhaps coming from a similar background to us were, you know, not familiar with collections or sort of intimidated, you know, you want to help collections, but you're intimidated about how to get in to help collections and to give them uh, people this sort of jumping off point. So it's really a matter of kind of integrating the collections community with, with you know, other elements of the research community. Exactly. Let's talk about another role of collections potentially, which is, you know, in terms of outreach. So obviously, you know, the the importance of making sure that the scientific effort is broadly understood by the public um, has never been more important than it is right now for any number of reasons. Um, what role can collections play in that type of effort? Yeah, so collections are really great for outreach because they are tangible um, and they offer a real opportunity for people who may not otherwise see organisms to interact with these and also to see a wide variety of different organisms. And we've actually seen, you know, sort of a result of COVID that um, those collections that have really prioritized outreach or uh, digital outreach, actually, these facilities are still available. So you can actually go and tour the Smithsonian Natural History Collection online at this moment. Um, and so it, I think, provides a really great um, way for people to get into collections. Um, and then there's also a fair amount that uh, really motivated citizen scientists can do to help collections. So that um, there are some sort of outreach, uh, digitization, citizen scientists, opportunities out there about transcribing labels or, you know, there's a lot of non-specialist um, work that needs to be done with collections. So digitization and photography or, um, you know, designing websites or things like that are all things that would really help collections that could be done by people who have no scientific experience as well. And so I think that they provide a really nice um you know, sort of intro into science. And I think that's a great note to leave it on. And uh, we'll, of course, encourage all of our listeners to go out there and seek out those opportunities. Um, Dr. Miller, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.